Welcome to Chat with the Designers, your live online weekly ham radio magazine for homebrewers, QRPers, ham radio op across the fruited plains. Again, this is George N2APB and Joe N2CX, your co-hosts for the session. This is session number 34. 34 weeks we've been doing this, and many of you have been joining us just about every week, and we really appreciate that. Tonight's session, first of all, is going to hopefully be really quality-wise heard pretty well. As Joe said, we spent some good time looking at the quality of both our voices and tweaked the microphones and really got things, I think, nailed pretty well. So if you're listening along on a podcast, you won't have to lean close to the speakers there in the car. You'll be able to follow along pretty well. We appreciate uh, your comments about the need for improvement, and we'll take action where we can. So tonight's session is going to be a really interesting one. We had a lot of feedback relative to our component selection series where we look at the parts in a schematic and figure out what we need to do in order to make that circuit and what happens if you don't have that component. Ultimately, you you know, you scrounge around and try to use something. Half the challenge is just understanding what role, what purpose, what function, what parameter is important in the circuit that that component is filling. Maybe it's power related, maybe it's frequency related, maybe it's uh, size and position related. Anyway, many of you fed back on uh, of an interest on toroids and by gum that's what we're going to be doing here tonight. We collected a really interesting collection of notes on the white and hopefully everybody's had a chance to look at the whiteboard. Now the whiteboard if you look at any of the uh, uh, it's it's a web page and I've given the link and the invitations that have been posted on the various uh, lists. If you go to the New Jersey QRP Club page, you would the homepage for that njqrp.org, you'll see a link for the uh, the whiteboard. It's a it's a web page. In our usual fashion, we have uh, kind of basic start off material, tutorial in nature. We go through a tremendous amount of uh, uh, examples by way of foot, uh, pictures that we'll augment with uh, with verbal discussion between Joe and me. We tried to cover a lot of ground. There's no way within the next hour that we can cover everything. But uh, we do cover some of the basics, we think, and even extend some of the issues. You'll find that we have, uh, this is a very user-oriented, hands-on kind of uh, uh, discussion. This is not textbook tutorial, at least we don't think it is. This comes from a lot of experience that Joe and I have on the bench um, over the years and especially doing a lot of the QRP projects that uh, that we uh, encounter that use toroids. Heck, especially the uh, uh, the soft rock is a good example. And we have that as a test case down at the end of the page. As we often start off with, I, I we include uh, a section from Wikipedia relative to the physics of the specific component or the technique or the, or the technology that we're dealing with on any given night. And this one here has some pretty good uh, descriptions. We're not going to go through this word by word. Um, You can do that. In fact, this page, this whiteboard page, is essentially really made to be uh, put together as a reference material. I mean, you'll get a little bit of benefit, well, hopefully a lot of benefit, from the discussion here this evening. But using the links, using the information that's presented in here, when you're working on your next project next week or next month, you'll be able to maybe look back and use this as a reference uh, chapter for the homebrewing activities there on your bench. And and, and that uh, and this information here, is, for example, from the Wikipedia is, is a good place to start. It talks about Q-factor and inductance and magnetic flux. And we're not going to get into some of the, a lot of the physics, except to say 
that uh, you know the benefits of a the benefits of a toroid uh, as compared to uh, in, as an, as a toroidal inductor maybe as compared to an air core um, an air inductor an air coil wound um, type of inductor is that it is self shielding I think its biggest its biggest claim to fame is a combination of being a self shielding type of inductor. It's not influenced by other components and other magnetic fields to the degree that um, air-wound coils, maybe like a mini-ductor coil that you've uh, seen in your rigs and probably used in the small forms for for uh, uh, low-pass filters, um, or other types of magnetic devices, maybe even like big old transformers. Um, toroidal inductors are not affected as much as... Uh, and, and they're because they're self-shielding, and it, and it's really kind of a nice uh, uh, feature of the device. Additionally, it's uh, got a pretty high Q, so it's it's uh, from a tuned circuit perspective, it can serve really well as the uh, as the frequency selective component um, in in a uh, in a in a circuit that is highly responsive to a given frequency. So if the Q is high, it, your your component is useful in uh, a lot of uh, a lot of applications. The higher the Q, the better filtering, the, the better selectivity, the better function it's going to perform, uh, as we'll talk a, a little bit later down. Uh, Joe, you want to comment just real quickly, perhaps, on some of the other general benefits of, uh, of toroids? Yeah, the uh, the net effect of uh, having a ferromagnetic uh, medium uh, is that it concentrates the uh, magnetic field in the core itself. So that is what actually gives you a boost in, uh, in the inductance of the coil in a small space. And as George pointed out, it is a, uh, it's because it's concentrated in the core, it is inherently uh, reasonably self-shielding. So that um, it, it gives you a uh, uh, lesser effect of, uh, from surrounding components. The other advantage is that it's, uh, it's quite compact. Uh, it's nice to have a small, uh, compact uh, component, and being uh, self-shielding, there's not so much of a requirement for uh, shielding compartments in uh, in a given radio. Now, of course, you do need some shielding, but this this lessens the requirements, makes it much easier to cram a lot of uh, a lot of electronics in a small space. Yep, in, indeed, that is the case. In fact. If you take a look at some of the photos there um, of the toroids laid out along the, the bench, you'll see that there are a whole variety, and you 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 can recognize some of them because we use them a lot in RF situations. Um, on the left, you see, uh, well, there, there's all sorts of toroids. There's uh, single wound inductors. There's multiple wound transformer, multiple winding transformers. Um, in the middle, I tried to show some of the, uh, just the cores that are used a little bit more. And you see a stack up of yellow, gray, and geez, it looks like green. I can't really tell, um, although I doubt it's green. Toroids that are different sized cores. We're going to get into that right now. And then on the right, you see some uh, binocular cores. And we're going to, going to talk about those. Those are kind of special. And... Um, we use them in, in certain applications, and again, these toroids, these these types of inductors are used in, in uh, um, broadbanded applications that we're going to show in our example down below. So we, we kind of approached the, the 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 topic here, starting off with you know 
how do I select a core? If you if you pick up a schematic from a magazine um, that describes on building a uh, an output power amplifier or an output stage for a QRP transmitter, and uh, it, it shows you, you would probably see two three different kinds of uh, trans uh, two or three different kinds of inductors that are indicated. You'd have one for the uh, the LPF, the low-pass filter. You'd have another type for probably the output trans transistor stage, uh, which requires some impedance transformation. And you'd have a transformer, in other words. And chances are good that you'll have a uh, maybe a tuned circuit uh, on the input of that power amplifier stage uh, that gives you some selective uh, frequencies so that you're only amplifying, say, the 40-meter trans. Um, signal fundamental that you're generating with your LO, with your local oscillator. So you might ask yourself, what do I do? Where do I start? So let's look at selecting a core, selecting a core, a toroidal core. And when you really stop and um, uh, think about it, there's there are two basic fundamental materials that are used to create the cores that we commonly use in the ham radio circles. One is called ferrite, and the other is called powdered iron. And if you're anything like me, uh, up until not too long ago, I got those two confused. I really didn't care which was which. And, you know, I just knew that I needed an FT50 here or maybe a T50 there. And I didn't understand uh, the basics and uh, the reasoning for selection. And it's really quite um, fundamentally important that you do know that if you're looking and grabbing around in your junk box looking for the right kind of uh, material, the right type of uh, core that you pick the right kind of core for the application you're looking. We're going to get into again um, s- uh, some examples of these, but in a nutshell, the ferrite is uh, a ferrite core. For example, like an FT50 might be the designation, is used for making broadband inductors and transformers when you need to have a wide frequency response. Again, such as a uh, a transformer in the output stage for uh, for a one watt amplifier in your QRP rig, you really want to have a broadband inductors because oftentimes, of course, you want to operate the uh, you're going to squirt a signal on the input of that uh, that amplifier that might be at 40 meters and it's going to be in 80 meters or maybe it'll come in at 20 meters and you don't want to have to change the output stage every time that you uh, you change your your operating frequency. So you want that output amplifier to be broadband and the, the transformer in the in the uh, amplifier stage would need to take care of that broadband capability and that's handled by the ferrite material and so you would use an FT50. By the way 50 you know, relates to the size it's a half an inch 0.5 inch diameter. Now Supposing that you wanted to have a tuned circuit and of course as I said in our little example our working example if you've got a low pass filter Right after your amplifier, um, before it goes out to the antenna, you need a uh, typical is to use a couple of uh, two or three uh, inductors in, in a uh, pi or uh, elliptical uh, type of filtering. Um, and you would use something called a power a powdered iron uh, core, which is a, which is designated with a single letter T. So the T50 in this case is a half inch diameter powdered iron core and again its specialty its reason for being in life at least on the qrp home brewers bench is uh, 
is for making tuned circuits. If you wanted to make a, a low-pass filter, you would use the powdered iron uh, core. You would, uh, if you're using a, a trans, if you're using a um, an inductor and a capacitor and some type of a filter that would um, uh, that you're looking to pass only a specific uh, small band of frequencies, you would use a powdered iron um, inductor uh, toroid because it's used for making tuned circuits. We'll see this as an example uh, down below. Joe, you want to chat for a moment about sizes? Big guy. Size matters, and we all know that. Just an aside here, um, while we're talking about the uh, T's and the FT's and, and these uh, all these numbers, um, I just want to mention that uh, they've been pretty standardized for ham use because the, um, the cores come through a distributor named uh, Amidon, Amidon Associates out on the West Coast. They buy them from other manufacturers, and they're the distributor who, who makes them available. And they came up with these designations to simplify uh, purchasing them. If you buy them from, um, from the, directly from the manufacturers, uh, you'll have uh, numbers that are 10 or 12 digits long with interspersed letters and, and numbers and all sorts of things. It gets pretty confusing. So Amidon simplified... Uh, Simplified the, uh, I'm sorry, Micrometals is the distributor. Micrometals uh, made it simple with uh, for the uh, common toroids to have a uh, very simple alphanumeric uh, designation so we can tell what's what. And then uh, Amidon Associates is the uh, distributor to the hams uh, who makes them available at low, low cost. And then, of course, uh, um, other Distributors, other uh, people who deal directly with hams, like uh, Diz, W-A-D-I-Z, kits and parts, makes them available in small quantities. You can buy them from Amidon, but they generally want you to buy larger quantities. You can go to um, a place like Diz and buy them for uh, uh, buy them in, in very small quantities, one at a time if you want. Uh, as George mentioned, uh, the, the beginning letter, the FT or the T, Stands for either ferrite or a powdered iron core, and then the uh, the next uh, part of the number is very very easy. For example, in our whiteboard, uh, uh, we talk about a T37. T37 is just shorthand for a a um, an iron powdered core that has a three eighths of an inch diameter. It's 0.375 inches. Similarly, the T50 that George mentioned earlier is uh, the same powdered iron core with um, uh, a diameter of half an inch, and uh, T68 is 0.68 inches, um, one point, uh, T130 is 1.3 inches in diameter, and there are other sizes in between those, but that's the, that's the general formula. It's a shortcut for uh, the dimensions in, um, uh, in inches. Um, and along those lines, there's also a, another type of core, the binocular core. These have other numbers, usually something like a BLN, which is um, meaningful because they're often used for uh, balance or, or uh, other things like that. Um, they're a, um, a small core, relatively small core, that uh, gives you, they're also called a pig nose uh, core, because they give you two holes to wind a transformer. The particulars are um, a little involved. There are some references at the end if you're if you're interested in why. But they give you a large cross-section so that you can have a lot of um, paramagnetic material in there to get a, um, 
high inductance in a small space, generally for um, um, broadband transformers uh, usage. Having two holes, there are the two windings, but because the, uh, the, the fields from the individual windings are in the core, there is virtually no coupling between the windings on the two cores in a ballon or in a, a, a pig nose or um, uh, one of the binocular cores. So it allows you to make a transformer with a whole bunch of windings, a whole bunch of turns in a small space, and then have the effect of uh, two toroidal inductors next to each other that don't talk to each other. So they're very, very good at, uh, at making uh, tight coupling for uh, transformers and a high inductance so that you can get a broadband, uh, broadband transformer out of them. Um, so, you know, I've heard some discussion on some of the lists recently about, you know, could you take two standard cores, toroidal cores, stack them on top of each other and, and increase, the, uh, increase the inductance? Um, and would that kind of like, would this use of the binocular cores be a, the more proper way or more compact way to achieve the same result? Indeed, you could, um, if you have the same core material, um, if you stack two toroids, one atop each other, and um, uh, per turn, you'll get twice the inductance that you would with one core. Similarly, with three cores, you'd get three times the inductance. The advantage is, in a small footprint, you can make a, uh, a, uh, an inductor with um, two or three times the inductance, uh, although the Q may suffer. Okay, very good. Uh, let's take a break here just for a second. We're covering some, even though it's it's basic material and we're dwelling on it, we're going to start speeding up. But I wanted to catch uh, anybody's questions, uh, maybe that uh, on the materials, um, the ferrite or the powdered iron, and the sizes and the binocular cores. We're going to cover permeability, the last of the major uh, factors in determining what kind of a core, what kind of a toroid you want to make. Uh, or use to achieve a given result. But any questions so far here? Yeah, Pete, go ahead. Yeah, the original BIDX-20 design used toroids wound on faucet washers because that was available. And from time to time I've wondered, gee, rather than deal with getting ferrite from wherever, since it's usually not available locally, uh, other than unknown scrap, uh, I wonder if there is a role for toroids wound on as found items, lifesavers or washers or whatever for uh, various purposes. Well, I'll let Joe pick it up in a second, but I think in general, the idea is, and you'll get the hang of this when we talk about permeability next, you'll need to characterize an unknown transformer and uh, an unknown toroid. And um, by the way, there's a great reference uh, down at the bottom uh, relating to um, um, scrounging toroids which is pretty much what you're referring to, Pete. And a bottom line is that you're going to need to characterize it to kind of determine what um, what is the permeability. In other words, what, it's, what is its basic capability to handle a magnetic field, you know, in that in its in um, in the device relative to air. Joe. No, I, I, actually, I was talking mostly about for uh, toroids wound on uh, non-ferromagnetic materials. Okay, well, everything I said is still true about scrounging. Um, yeah, you can make uh, toroids that way, and I know that Farhan, I believe is the guy's name, did that for the initial uh, inductors. He was trying to get an inductance in a small space. The, the, um, it does make a compact inductor. The disadvantage is that you don't get, um, 
you don't get a very high inductance in a small space, so you need a a large um, a larger inductor than you would on a ferromagnetic um, uh, core, and you don't get the self-shielding capabilities. Uh, that said, I have seen it done at UH at uh, VHF. At HF, um, it, it's better to try to get a, a ferromagnetic core. So the um, in another interesting dimension of this too, and and Joe, you know, know this. We were selecting cores for creating the low-pass filter bank in the uh, in the upcoming RF power cube and power amplifier for the SDR cube. And one of our trans one of the cores that we selected, one of the toroids, is a ceramic core. It is non-magnetic, non uh, uh, non-magnetic material, right? That's true, and that's a special case. That was a case where uh, there was a need for inductors that were reasonably small um, in in inductance, so that um, using an air core uh, or a a ceramic core, non-ferromagnetic core. Uh, didn't matter. The advantage there was um, it's a, something you can pre-wind. It's physically uh, stable and easily mounted. Easier to mount in word than an air core uh, coil, uh, just kind of like a spring. It would be tough to store and uh, more difficult to uh, to mount in the board. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, I think for that reason too, we wanted to make sure that that particular core was not affected by other components because it didn't have this as much of the self-shielding capability as a normal ferrous-related uh, uh, materials. Joe, you want to comment just real fast? Uh, Todd had asked a question in the text section saying he didn't understand your comment about uh, binocular cores and the coupling, you, uh, the no coupling between the sides of the, uh, of the cores. Yeah, um, there is not uh, much coupling between the sides of the cores. Uh, in general, use a, a bifiler or a a, quadri uh, a bi, tri, or quadrifiler winding, so that the um, each turn goes through both core sections, so that the coupling is uh, between the the wires within a given section. The advantage of having a binocular core is that you get you get the ability to have a lot longer magnetic path, so you can get more inductance in a small space. Okay. Um. Good questions, and thank you for speaking up, both of you guys. And if anybody else has one, just blink your light. Uh, yes. Uh, this is kind of off the wall, but back in the day, uh, people have tried to get very stable and linear oscillators for local oscillators uh, by having variable uh, permeability-tuned oscillators, PTOs. Is it possible to vary the permeability or the uh, the actual output value of uh, ferrite? No, it's not very feasible to do it in the fixed format of uh, of the torrids that we have. As we'll see, we'll see when we get a little bit further down, uh, we can uh, tweak the windings a little bit in order to uh, adjust the inductance. But for the most for part, the, most part um, the, fixed the fixed permeability is is, is indeed fixed. Joe. Joe. Yeah, there there is a caveat to that. It is possible to do it, and there are uh, current tuned inductors. Uh, some ferrite materials you can, if you put a DC bias in there by changing the bias, you can change the effective permeability. Um, it uh, it's it's used in reasonably low Q applications, applications where you don't have uh, you don't require a lot of frequency um, stability. 
because it's very temperature sensitive. But I have seen that um, used uh, particularly for um, tuning antennas on uh, naval ships uh, for receive applications. Okay, good. Let's move along. Um, want to hit the basics and uh, before we get into some of the uh, the esoteric applications and, and, and such. Um, let's talk about permeability. And permeability fundamentally is the way that a um, uh, it's a measurement of, of the magnetic field concentration um, within the device relative to air. So it's uh, how much uh, um, as, as the equation there says permeability. In fact, uh, you might want to refresh your browser if you if you're looking live here. For some reason, the subscript L that I had put up there caused a carriage return, so I changed that back to a capital L permeability factor. Uh, the permeability uh, label is called A sub L, and um, a sub L is related to uh, uh, the number of turns that are required to give you um, the um, a certain amount of, um, in this case here, nanohendries. We have a chart here, again, in a really, really good data book. We referenced this last week or the week before. One of the two books that we referenced that you really ought not live without as a QRP homebrewer is called Data Book for Homebrewers and QRPers by Paul Harden, NA5N. And you can uh, contact Bill Kelsey, K8ET of Kanga US, in order to uh, see about getting that particular uh, uh, book. I think it's out of print right now, but if we get enough interest in it, you would not at all uh, regret trying to get your hands on this book. Um, with uh, uh, appropriate accredita- uh, um, credits given to Paul, I've take a, taken a quick snapshot of this one page called... Uh, Selecting the proper toroidal core, and this, folks, is really where it is all at, and it shows a couple of curves that indicate several things that are very important when it comes time for us to be either selecting a component to use, or trying to understand a circuit and its operation. One of the first things that uh, you'll see on this chart are that the the cores, the iron powder cores, are listed on the left. Um, you'll see T30-2, T37-2. George Quickie. Yeah. A sub L is a factor in determining the inductance. Permeability is uh, mu. It is related to A sub L, but it's, uh, uh, strictly speaking, A sub L is not mu. Okay, thanks for that, Joe. So we see different cores listed there, T32, T37-2, T44-2, and, and so on. You'll notice the commonality there is the dash 2. The dash 2 is known as the mix, and the mix shows a certain range of A sub L um, in order to achieve a given um, inductance. Um, you would need to have a certain number of turns as, uh, as indicated by, um, by the charts to the right. So you'll see the first chart to the right is inductance versus turns, and there's a pretty much a straight line that goes up. The inductance is going to increase linearly uh, with the number of turns. Um, however, if you look at the next chart over, you'll see several different true curves, uh, kind of Bezier type of curves that uh, peak and, and diminish at certain uh, frequencies. So you've got frequency along the x-axis from 1 to 10 megahertz in this case. And you'll see in the in the y-axis, you'll see toroidal um, and, and 
Uh, gosh, what is that? Uh, what is that unit, Joe? I'm just looking at it. Q. <laughs> it's uh, Q versus frequency. Using this chart, you try to optimize your Q for a given uh, given toroid and inductance. So simply stated, if you're making a 40 meter transform, uh, tra um, a low pass filter, let's use this again. If you're making a 40 meter trans uh, <laughs> low pass filter, and uh, of course 40 meters is an operating frequency of seven megahertz, you want to pick a um, um, a core and a mix that is responsive at that particular frequency. So in this here, in this case here, if you move it to seven megahertz, you would see probably it's going to be either the D or C curve uh, in order to get the best Q or the best responsiveness and best operation for uh, that particular uh, core. So if you look at D and C and D, you would see that it's a T37 with its uh, size of T37, and recall that we're in the in the mix two section. It would be a T37-2, and you would use um, the number of turns that are indicated there, 28 turns of number 26 wire, uh, in order to get 3.3 microhenries. Um, or if you wanted to have more micro more inductance, you would have more turns, and uh, pretty much the the, the smaller wire that they indicate there, 40 turns of number 28, smaller gauge, is just to allow the greater number of turns to fit around uh, uh, to fit around the core. As we'll talk about a little bit later, the size of the, the gauge of the wire really doesn't make an awful lot of difference um, in the uh, in achieving the actual inductance. It just allows you to fit more turns with a, if you have a smaller gauge wire you have an occasion to have more turns around a, a given core in order to, to achieve the, uh, the inductance that you're looking for. Um, Joe, do you want to hit any other dimension about this uh, chart? It's kind of pivotal. It's kind of an important uh, chart. I can be, you see some of my notes on here because this is from my book. Uh, I see notes. Uh, I have notes in all my books and such, and I use this page a lot. Joe? Yeah, uh, two things. Um, yeah, as you notice here, um, we, we gave you some rules. Well, you can get rules of thumb for the frequency of usage, of course. They're uh, just general. Uh, most of the, the cues we're seeing here are over 100, and some go up to almost 200. So the cores are good over a, a wide frequency range, and you just try to pick the optimum, uh, optimum cue that you can for a given frequency. Or... Uh, you can use with a one with a, a lower um, lower cue if that's adequate um, to get an idea of what's going on. Second topic is at the very bottom. There's a um, a chart of the ferrite cores, the mix 43 and 61. These have a lot more inductance. They have higher permeability, um, a lot higher inductance. And you'll notice there's not cue. Sh uh, there's no um, uh, cue curves shown. Uh, these are not normally used for precision inductors. Uh, as George mentioned, they're used for broadband transformers or for um, chokes or inductors that are used for um, uh, filtering out uh, RFI. So uh, that's why there's a difference in the, uh, in the curves for those two cores. 
different application. Good pointing out, Joe. I was going to get to that one as well, but that's really an important item. The Mix 43 is a very common uh, one when we're making uh, a wideband types of chokes um, and uh, inductors. So you'll see those. Um, I have a, oh, I have bags of those from the various projects that we've done and collected leftovers along the way. T37 is very common, so you may see some of those coming along in some of our projects. Um, does anybody have any questions? And, and it's quite valid to have a lot of questions around this, this uh, the permeability issue and uh, selection of, of the, the right kind of core. In general, as we sort of uh, indicated, the mix two is used for the, the lower types of uh, the lower HF, uh, the lower bands type six, as you can see from the, um, the Q response uh, curves, uh, extends its ubiquity, its usefulness up to the uh, uh, up into the much higher ranges, uh, 10 meters and even above. And uh, 10, we don't use mix uh, mix mix 10 very much. At all. I don't use mix 10 very much at all, but that extends right up to past six meters and and could li likely be used even up into the two meter uh, and two meter region. So any uh, any questions about this chart and the basic uh, issues of permeability? size, and uh, ferrite versus iron powder. Hi, it's Terry. You might also mention, George, about the different color versus um, permeability, uh, permeability or mixes. Yeah, indeed. In fact, I might have kind of let it slip out a little bit when I was talking about it. Red is the uh, mix two. Yellow is the uh, mix six. And frankly, I don't know what color uh, mix 10 is. Anybody know? And mix I think 40, go ahead. I think it's white, George. There's another okay. one, uh, dash seven, which is tan, which has the lowest uh, temperature coefficient. It's often used for uh, VFOs. Ah, that's a great point. I didn't uh, didn't realize that. That can be very useful for some of our projects. Okay, let's get on let's, with, with some of the basics, perhaps under our belt, or at least covered ground here. Let's get on to the. Uh, uh, the part that brings uh, dread and fear and cold sweats and the need to run off to the bathroom, sometimes winding the toroid. How many of you have ever avoided a project because it has toroids, uh, winding up uh, toroids in it? Yeah, I didn't think anybody would really speak up, but nonetheless, the way I, I phrased it. My point is, is that I think um, that's indeed the case. I've got projects here. Unbuilt kits. I've got a few unbuilt kits. I imagine others are like uh, like me. And I think some of the other some of the un, some of the uh, um, um, a good reason for it being unbuilt is because of the time it might take in my mind or otherwise to actually wind the toroids for that uh, for the given project. But as it turns out, you know it's it's really not that bad. You might end up with some numb fingers. From grasping, you know, the the small toroids and hanging onto them while you're you're dealing with it, and uh, as I said in some of the intros, you might lose count halfway through, counting up to 43, and need to start over again, or you know, bring out the times 100 or times 1,000 magnification uh, lens in order to start counting up all of your turns and, and such. But uh, at the end of the day, it's really not that tough, and if you have a basic tool such as the AADE. LC meter two, uh, you'll you'll be all set. I mentioned uh, 
uh, usually once a week, I mention that there, if there's one thing that you cannot live without, you know, this week's men, uh, this week's item is the LC Meter 2 from AAD, almost all electronics. The link is at the very bottom. We pictured it a couple of times. It is an absolutely fundamentally essential part of the equipment that you want to have for your home brewer bench. And with that, as you'll see a little bit later, you'll be able to measure the inductance of the torrid that you're winding. So, and that's going to be another double check. It's going to be a, a checking mechanism to see that you got the right turns, that you got the right uh, permeability uh, uh, core, and uh, that you got uh, things just about right. So let's get into winding the toroids from sizes. We'll start right at the uh, at the sizes from our whiteboard. You can see you can see that we uh, we mentioned, as I said before, size doesn't matter too much um, with respect to the uh, the magnet wire that you're there that you're winding around the core. Bottom line is you just need to fit all of the windings, all of the turns that comprise the winding. Um, you need to fit that all onto the core. Um, you need to make sure that it's spread out across from end, uh, from start to finish, pretty much uh, evenly. And uh, you make, you got, you can't, you ought not, you ought to try to avoid overlapping. Well, certainly if you've got enough room for all of the turns to be done evenly and, and fit on the core, there should be no overlapping because you will mess up the, uh, um, the, the overall inductance that you're looking to achieve. Uh, sometimes, in rare occasions, when a designer improperly design, uh, selects a toroid, such as I did in a couple of our earlier projects, some of you might remember the Fireball 40, you had to put like uh, 65 turns on a T37, I'm sorry, an, FT, uh, an FT37. No, it would have been a T37. And uh, there's no way to fit uh, 65 turns on there, so you had to double up, and it should have just used a larger core as the bottom line. Um, the, the, the next thing to really talk about as far as the sizes is the actual wire itself. Magnet wire, which is what we use to wind our toroids, is uh, often, uh, or always, uh, coated with an enamel-like coating to insulate it from adjacent windings. And uh, when it comes time to prepare the ends of the windings for soldering into your circuit board or soldering over to a, a node uh, you know, in your circuit, you'll need to strip off that, uh, that enamel so your solder can adhere and you can make a good electrical connection. It is really, really important, really, 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 really important, essential even, that, of course, you have good electrical connect, uh, conduction. Um, uh, a connection to uh, between the toroid and your your circuitry that you're on the board, so you, of course you want to make a make do a good job of scraping off the ends. There has been in the past um, a um, a type of uh, magnet wire that is uh, called uh, uh, oh gosh what is it strippies solderies right Joe? It's solderies and most of the uh, most of the kits these days from um, ham manufacturers use solderies wire. So you don't have to do that uh, dreaded uh, scraping anymore. Yeah, so the thing with solderies, I didn't know if that was a brand name or a patented name or just a general technique, but the bottom line is that you heat up the end of the wire 
and um, you apply some solder and actually it's the flux that gets into the end of the wire and gets underneath and lifts lifts and separates the uh, the enamel from the wire and ultimately you end up with a stripped uh, end of wire and it is so much easier than taking your uh, sandpaper and our exacto knife and scraping and trying to get all the way around and I can't tell you how many times I've done that and what the joy of using solderese uh, is to, in order to uh, to get the end stripped off. A caution that we'll mention down at the bottom, um, mentioned here though too because it's right in the topic, is that you want to be sure that you you strip off enough. Sometimes you'd strip off uh, some wire. Take a look at the uh, um, right underneath the dread the the title that says dreaded winding process is a pair of it looks like T sixty eight. Six, dash six yellow cord uh, transformers, uh, toroids. And you will see, actually, you don't see it. Doggone it. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, I was hoping the ends would be shown. In the case for those, those toroids, for example, you would want to strip off all the way up to just before the, um, the wire encounters the, 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 the yellow toroid body on both sides, you know, both of the wires. And the point I'm trying to make is that if you don't strip off the enamel enough, you're going to uh, pull the, the toroid down taut or tight to uh, to the circuit board, and uh, you might pull the enamel part right along with it and try to solder to an enamel uh, piece of wire, and it just won't work. We have to, we're going to have to speed up here a little bit. So just be sure that you strip off enough wire. That's, that's the bottom line. Um, a point that I'm going to let Joe talk about, since it's his find, is uh, there is a very, very cool and inexpensive uh, source of uh, uh, thermal strippable insulation uh, um, magnet wire. Joe? Thank you. Yeah. Uh, the, general, the general thing is uh, in, in stripping the heat strip wire, by the way, with a soldering iron, the idea is that uh, the flux strips off the wire and you tin the wire up to the core as well. Because uh, if it's if it ain't tinned, you ain't going to be able to solder. Yeah, the the find was um, actually I saw on a list somewhere that some craft stores had um, copper clad wi uh, copper wire with um, uh, colored insulation. Turns out the Joanne Fabrics and I believe CC Moore, AC Moore, also have this. They use it for stringing beads, but it is indeed soft drawn copper wire. It's available in lengths from. Uh, in uh, sizes from 20 to 26 gauge, and it costs about um, two to three dollars for uh, 60 yards. And the insulation is heat strippable. You might ask why the different colors for electronics. Now the idea is if you have a multi-winding uh, toroid or multi-winding transformer, it makes identifying the uh, each individual winding of the uh, of the uh, inductor much easier if they're color-coded. Let's take a look at the uh, the different pictures that we've got there. We already talked about the yellow, the yellow uh, uh, toroid. And by the way, uh, winding with one's finger, I was trying to get a picture of it, and I was going to take a picture of my own fin finger uh, doing it. Um, but you, you grab it with, say, your left finger, forefinger and thumb, and using your right hand, guiding almost in a threading kind of manner the length of your magnet wire through and around and around and around and of course each time that the wire passes through the core 
you have a, a turn. Um, and there are no fractional turns, but uh, that, that's kind of the way that it's done. In a moment, we're going to come to a photo that, and a link that, that really is an alternate technique that some people are finding quite nice. But the next one, it says creating taps in the inductor. You know, as you're winding around, supposing you have a, uh, um, like a, an inductor in the, in the uh, rainbow tuner bridge is a good example that it comes to my mind. And it's an inductor that has multiple taps along the way. So it's not just an, a starting and an end, but there are taps partway through, like a halfway tap and, and so on. Um, a way to achieve that when you're actually winding the, tra the toroid is to, at the point after, say, five turns, you pull, you make, a, uh, you double back the uh, the wire as you're winding and you start twisting it together a little bit to create those little loops that are shown in the uh, in the photo with the red or the uh, the mix two inductor that is shown there under creating taps in the inductor. And you end up with all those taps and then after you're all done, you can come back, snip off those wires, tin them back, and you end up with nicely formed taps um, along the way for you with your inductor. Uh, the next photo says identifying different windings in a toroid as we'll talk about briefly uh, in a little bit, when creating transformers or toroids with multiple windings, it's important to, to keep track of uh, which winding is which, which start of a winding goes with which ending of the winding. Now, surely you can use an ohmmeter to, to do that, but if you have multiple windings on a, along a toroid, and ultimately you're going to need to deal with it um, by putting, you know, the end, uh, one end in a certain hole, another end in a different hole. And if you get it mixed up, you're not going to have your transformer operating right. So a way that this technique illustrates is to put some kind of a, a color-coded heat shrink uh, item on it or a curly cue on one and a, and a kind of a no curly cue on another ending. So you can identify the common starting and endings. As shown here, I would assume that... Uh, um, the two windings that have a little curly cue on the end are the start and end of the same piece of wire. That's crucial for ultimately putting your toroid into the circuit board for, uh, you know, the intended uh, circuit. Now in the next circuit, or the next picture, is uh, this, it's a large view of a red toroid with uh, red enamel wire. Um, this is a good description um, from the soft rock pages um, that describes um, winding techniques for for toroids, and here you can see the the counts of the of the turns in this particular um, toroid, and it's a 22 turn coil, and um, you can actually see thing. And actually, I do see. Uh, looks like turn number. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Turn number seven looks like it's overlapped a little bit, so there is a boo-boo in that case. A second cautionary uh, uh, on this particular photo, you can see the insulation stripped off like we were talking before. It, in my opinion, if this is for the soft rock, the RX-TX, uh, this is going to be pulled taut against the TXPA board, and the insulation is not stripped enough such that if you pull this, toroids and um, uh, uh, windings, the ends of the winding, down against the board, you're going to pull it such that the insulated portion extends beyond the bottom of the board, and you're not going to be able to solder to it. So that's that's a problem in the making. So it's something to watch out for. 
that looks like it was scraped and not uh, um, not uh, solder eased off. Now, here is the cool thing. When you get a chance, um, you want to check out this uh, this uh, video called A Meditation on Winding Toroids by K6JEB. Uh, he uses a chopstick, which is a, a tapered uh, a tapered stick, um, clenched in a vise pointing up, and you see the toroid slip down over the top of the of the of the chopstick, and uh, he raises it up in order to put a um, a loop of the magnet wire through it, constituting turn, and then when he pulls it tight and taut, he drops it down, and then he puts his attention on finding the the end of the wire again. Uh, when he's got it in his right hand again, he raises that toroid up on the stick again so he can fit the next turn on. And it's a pretty good way. It's a pretty simple and, and clever way to keep track of the windings without having to grip that small T37-2 um, in your finger and thumb, which, uh, as I said, can get kind of numb after a, a bit. But please check out that, that video. That's a very cool uh, video for winding. That is a really cool idea. I like that. Yeah, indeed, Rich. It uh, um, the, that up and down motion is is, is kind of clever. The uh, next uh, the next picture there is the wind counting the windings on the binocular core. Joe, do you want to kind of talk about winding in the binocular core? You you hit the binoculars before. Sure. <laughs> yeah. A um, as with a toroid. <clears throat> excuse me. One turn is a pass <clears throat> through the core. However, with binocular core, one turn is a pass through both cores. So, indeed, uh, you you can uh, you can kind of have a half turn with a binocular core, although it's not usually used. Um, and quite normally, they are uh, well. You you can see from the picture that uh, um, a two winding. Uh, core has a wire go in uh, one core, passes through the, um, comes out the other end, is looped around and passes through back through the hole in the, the uh, first uh, half of the core, then passes back through the second hole in the, uh, uh, in the uh, core, giving you uh, two turns. And indeed, um, there, are, there is a description in one of the, uh, one of the references or how to wind a, a multi-winding bifolar transformer for those who get confused. And indeed, um, those of us who built some of the um, uh, soft rock stuff have had to go through this and uh, learn exactly what to do. But that reference by, it's uh, an i7, is an excellent, uh, excellent piece to have in front of you when you're winding one of these. I don't know whether you've mentioned it before, guys. Um... Uh, when there's a coloured coating on the toroid, is that actually an insulating coating? Yeah, well, the coating itself, whether it's red or any other colour, indeed is insulating. That's that's the nature of the kind of wire that we want to be using. Um, and it's often comes, it sometimes comes in multiple colours for the reasons that, that Joe had mentioned, as well as uh, I, too, when winding multiple windings, that you're able to better identify the ends uh, that need to be treated together or in, in inserted into separate holes of the circuit board. Um, I was actually meaning the uh, colored layer on the toroid itself. Is that an insulating layer? 
It uh, it is uh, it may be an insulating layer, but it generally doesn't matter because the uh, ferrite, the powdered iron, tor toroid cores are not uh, conducting; they're insulators. Um, the ferrite cores, on the other hand, may be insulators, um, may be conductive rather. So, um, particularly when you're dealing with large, um, large, uh, uh, sharp-edged toroids. It's a common practice to wind some sort of tape on, on the ferrite cores to uh, keep you from developing shorts where the uh, sharp edges of the core might bite through the insulation on the wire. Okay. I just wondered whether it would be possible if the toroid itself had a, a coating on it to use unenameled uh, wire, but obviously that's not a good idea. Uh, no, because then you'd have... You could do it, but you would have to widely space... Uh, the turns so that adjacent turns didn't show to each other. I have a question regarding the actual uh, toroidal material itself. Okay, this happened to me on more than one occasion, and I think I know the answer, but I want to be sure because I've got two geniuses here at my uh, at my disposal. I was building a, a kit, NorCal 40 actually, and I managed to fracture one of the toroidal inductors. And of course, I didn't have one in stock. So I got out my handy tube of super glue, put it all back together, wound it up, and it didn't seem to make any difference. However, when I talked to QRP Bob, he was he went on for about ten minutes of, of why I shouldn't have done that and sent me another core, which I dutifully rewound and replaced. Is there any real danger? Uh, I mean, is there any? If you physically disrupt the toroidal material and then glue it back together as, as I did. Is there any real problem with that? It's mainly a mechanical issue. If you can tightly um, glue it back together um, it will probably work pretty well. It might not be really strong and eventually um, you know from vibration or other, um, vibration or whatever or a little bit of moisture getting in there could come apart uh, in the future. But as a stopgap measure, it works. Okay, so the uh, uh, one of the cautions that we had given uh, a little bit down in the section toward the done is that the the the, the, the ferrous material is constructed by pressing, um, and also probably with some kind of an epoxy in there too, um, very very much compressing the material together to create the uh, the, the core. And like the windshield in your car, it contains a lot of stress. And if there is a little chip in it, or certainly if you drop it and, and, and you get a whack it on the floor, the chances are good that you're going to break it. So, I mean, they're very delicate in that particular regard. You know, just don't kind of throw them around in your junk box or shake them up in that glass jar and treat them kind of gingerly because the, you will break it, as Rich was, was indicating. And just gluing it together without care for the pressure, the pressure that you applied, Rich, probably indeed made it work, sort of. But the chances are if you just kind of applied some glue and put it off to the side and let the glue harden, you're not really uh, um, having the material close enough together. It's always better, I think, as a, as a general rule to replace something if it's uh, cracked in that particular manner. Yeah, just one real quick comment, George, and I hope this isn't wasting too much time. Um, when you're winding a core, winding a toroid, it's also a good idea to look at the circuit board and figure out how the core should be wound before you start. 
Uh, sometimes you wind the core from the bottom up through the hole, and sometimes you run wind the core from the top down through the hole, depending on um, how the how the holes are laid out on the circuit board. For example, in your pictures, the two yellow cores are wound completely opposite from the one red core below them. And the different circuit boards, you'd end up with a twisted core and um, something that wouldn't fit as right if you uh, wound it backwards. You are so right. And oh man, that's a great commentary. Um, the, uh, and you, you would, you can only, one can only appreciate that when it comes time to, to insert a, a toroid that was round in the opposite direction from which it was intended. And for some reason, you keep twisting the darn toroid and it keeps popping back into the other, the other way. That, that's a great comment. Was there another question? Yep, Larry. Yep. Is there somebody else having a question? Yeah, uh, Rich again. Okay, that, that brings up another question regarding seeing how these things are relatively delicate. And you mentioned the thing about popping around the other direction. I've had that happen to me. The thing still worked. I've always wondered, and I didn't do it on all the Sierras that I've had and some of the other rigs, but I have in the past used a small amount of, of uh, hot glue to actually position the, the toroidal inductor so it doesn't move. Uh, is there a pro or a con for this? Does it change any of the cue of the coil if you do that? That's a, uh, that's a long and interesting subject. There is some stuff uh, later on... Uh, uh, in George's uh, uh, text here that he was going to cover about that very topic. A little bit to hold the thing onto the cores, uh, the core onto the board is not necessarily a bad thing once it's soldered in place. Something like a non-contaminating RTV, and I could go on at length at that, or some hot glue might, uh, might do the trick. Generally, um, unless you're in a high vibration environment, you don't have to worry about it. Okay, cool. Thanks a lot, guys. All right, let's get on to the to the uh, the next point here. This is an important uh, this is an important relationship that we're, we're showing here. Making transformers with toroids. Um, we have um, we've shown there a diagram that is uh, got a toroidal winding, which is comprised of some twisted wire together, and forming windings A, B, C, and D, and it creates the schematically the the transformer that's shown on the right. And in this case here, it's shown as two independent uh, uh, toroids. The uh, we've got uh, two we've got a transformer there. Joe, can you comment on the bifiler? What is the difference, for example, of um, having two windings that are just overlapped? You know, you wind one single wire all the way around, and then you take another wire and you wrap, wire it all the way around to end up with the same four. Uh, ends that you would connect into your circuit. Maybe the primary is driven by one uh, stage and the secondary is, is driving the second stage, as opposed to bifiler, which is twisted. Well, with a bifiler winding, the object is to have a um, transformer that, or a winding that is very closely balanced by twisting, well, several things. First, first important thing is uh, it's very carefully balanced because the wires are exactly the same length and they occupy the same space around the core so that uh, any stray coupling will be the same for both. The second thing is quite often done to make a transmission line uh, transformer where the, um, the exact insulation on the wires, the wire diameter, and the twist per inch set the impedance of the winding can be important in some very broadband applications. 
All right. In the diagram below that, which is kind of a related diagram, we show how, um, in this case, um, I'm focusing on the the uh, the output, uh, the secondary of the of the transformer, which is shown with the red and the green wires. This is going to be too difficult to really explain verbally, other than to say, you see the dot notation that's indicated in the schematics, in schematic representation, indicates the way in which the wires are connected. We're going to analyze in just a moment, real briefly, the um, a schematic for the TXPA, the um, uh, the output amplifier in the in a in the soft rock circuit, and the dots there indicate um, the nature of how those windings should be connected. In this case here, the dots normally indicate the starting point for a given wire, and ultimately. Um, the, uh, the wires would be connected in the manner shown on the left. We've got a G2 winding, uh, and you see the G2 wire in the upper right-hand uh, side of that secondary. And the other end of that, on the left-hand side, you see the, the other end of that wire, which is kind of like the straight representation around a loop, ends with the, uh, uh, the G in the center being connected to the R in the center, which happens to be the center of that transformer on, uh, schematic on the right. And then the independent red on the right-hand uh, side, R1, is shown as the independent wire red on the left-hand side. So this is a typical schematic for a 1 to 4 impedance transformer. You know, the impedance um, on the input um, is one quarter of that on the output, and it's often used for stage-to-stage stage-to-stage -stage, uh, impedance uh, matching. And we see that a lot in output transformers, output uh, transistor uh, uh, amplifier stages, which typically have a low, uh, a low output impedance, and we want to drive a 50-ohm load, so we want to knock up or increase the impedance that is going into the low-pass filter and then into your antenna. So that's a very typical type of situation, as we'll see in a minute. Um, Joe, do you want to lead us through the, the cautions with toroids? Yeah, I'm, I'm just very quickly going to go through the uh, uh, cautions on working with toroids. Um, a number of uh, antenna tuners use uh, toroidal balance um, in order to get, uh, in order to be able to handle um, balanced antennas. Um, it, it often works quite well, and so long as the uh, impedance being shown to the balance is close to its design uh, range, and it's not uh, terribly inductive or not terribly reactive. You can get away with it, but if you have an antenna that is very, very uh, outside its uh, resonant area, and uh, the inductance, the uh, impedance of, on the feed line, for example, instead of being uh, nominally 200 ohms, might be uh, several thousand ohms. That's working outside the uh, comfort zone for the toroidal balance and it um, it becomes lossy and uh, you can burn, burn the darn thing up if you're running any power. Um, you can often get away with it with low power but uh, you could be in an unknown situation you could be uh, uh, wasting power. Um, as uh, as jo George mentioned earlier um, you should be careful in handling toroids. They are physically delicate particularly when they're not wound yet. 
um, and can be damaged with uh, sharp uh, with uh, with uh, shock. Uh, sharp edges, um, particularly the ferrite toroids, sometimes have sharp edges. So you have to be careful uh, when you're winding them that you don't bite through the insulation because uh, usually the ferrite toroids are conductive. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, with a large toroid on ductors, several inch inductors, it's not uncommon to wind some sort of uh, nylon tape, insulating tape on the core. Sorry, that's a fiberglass core on the um, fiberglass tape on the core to uh, prevent cutting the cutting through the insulation on the wires. Um, and uh, as with anything else, uh, watch out for the uh, heat of the toroid you're, uh, uh, you're using. If you're trying to push uh, power through, the, um, through a toroid that's not designed for it, uh, it'll get hot. When it gets hot, it can either burn up or need just change its, uh, its uh, characteristics. The uh, HW8 is a uh, classic example of having this. They used some ferrite toroids in there that were rather lossy. And even at the couple watt power level, the darn things got hot and um, uh, didn't work as a tour. It didn't work as an inductor anymore. Uh, we went through material selection pretty well. Um, here's the right uh, core for the right frequency. Mounting. Um, this is another thing that um, has some some black magic and some voodoo to it. As a general rule, it's best to mount the toroid upright um, on, a, on edge. If you mount it down flat on a conducting surface, you can uh, increase the stray capacitance across the toroid, change the apparent inductance, and uh, lower the Q. And as George measure, mentioned, uh, several other things. Um, you have to be careful to properly tin the core, tin the leads on the coils of uh, toroid or uh, uh, binocular core so that you're going to make good connection. And it's always a, a good thing if you know what the inductance of a given uh, a coil is supposed to be, measure it after winding it to be sure you didn't miss something. Um, and you can, you can hold the windings in place on a toroid with uh, some materials. There's a good uh, link for Clifton Labs on what materials to use. It will change the inductance a little bit, but if you want, uh, for example, in a VFO to, uh, to hold stability, to have stability, it may not be a bad idea to put some Q-dope on, uh, on the inductor. As I say, the link on the whiteboard to Clifton Labs has a, uh, has a good treatise on that. In that uh, Clifton Labs page, you would do well to read that. And uh, it shows you how to make your own Q-dope as well. I'm not I probably wouldn't. I'd go for the stuff that I can get from DigiKey or Mauser or whatever. But it's got some. Uh, uh, he's got. He, he's just got some really good information on that page. So a lot of things to watch out for. A lot of things to be careful of, uh, as the cautions uh, indicate. So keep that in mind as you do kind of go through your junk box and looking for the right toys and 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 select what you need with uh, with that in mind. The analyze this section, which tends to be a bit of a um, another growingly, increasingly common uh, uh, section we have on our whiteboards each week, we have uh, a, photo, a schematic representing the uh, the TXPA filter module from the Softrock RXTX 6.3, Whew. 
and uh, it's a nice module. It's a, an amplifier stage module with a low-pass filter. So it gives you about uh, one to two watts output. And it uh, works pretty well. It's a well-designed uh, circuit. It illustrates, and we're not going to go through it. We don't have time tonight, unfortunately, but it might be a really nice exercise for you. There are six inductors in this circuit, and um, there is a ferrite material inductor. There is a powdered iron material inductor. There is a toroidal inductor. There is a binocular inductor. Um, and again, if you wanted to make this thing for 40 meters, what mix, what color would your inductor, would your toroidal cores be? The answers to all these questions and more have been covered here this evening and above in the information. So use this as a bit of a guide and it's a, it's a really, it, it illustrates everything. Even the, uh, uh, the impedance transformation with a dot notation that we were given, uh, that we were talking about earlier. Okay, we want to go and talk about tonight's project. We'll do it pretty quickly. It's really kind of a simple, um, uh, quick project. I'll set the stage and turn it over to Joe to kind of quickly go through it. But fundamentally, we wanted to, to have a project that um, that you could build. And we were, were collecting parts such that uh, very shortly and truly like within, within uh, five or six days, we'll be able to have this uh, available for order for uh, listeners of Chat with the Designers. Um, and you too can make yourself a an N2CX choke ballon. So to find out more about what a choke ballon is and, and how to make it, this is the this is the place to do it. All you need is a length of RG174, a couple of BNC connectors, and an FT114-43. Now, by now you should know you should be able to decipher that code, FT114-43. And I won't even go through it because, because you know how to, you know what mix it is. You know what size it is. You know what the type of uh, ferrous material it is. And uh, you'll be all set. So, Joe, what the heck is a choke ballon? What do you do with it? And what, what is it going to do for me? Okay, thank you. I just wanted to do one aside... Uh... Another point to the um, um, the, ball the uh, uh, transformers wound with, uh, uh, in this case, uh, ferrite cores. Another use for having a transformer like this is to have galvanic isolation uh, between circuits. The TXPA uh, is not exactly that, but other places in the uh, in the soft rock series, the antenna inputs have a, uh, a ferrite core. Um, transformer on their input so that the inputs and output of the uh, um, the RF input and the uh, uh, regular circuitry of the uh, of the module are isolated to uh, minimize uh, hum pickup from the antenna um, which also is one of the purposes for choke ballon um, choke ballon is used with um, uh, many cases but uh, one of the biggest uses is for a uh, dipole antenna. If you have a, uh, a resonant antenna, a, um, a balanced dipole, and you want to feed it with coax, there can be a problem. With certain feed line lengths, um, the length of the feed line can look like a low impedance. Uh, and if you connect the, um, 
the uh, outer shield of the coax to part of the dipole, um, current from half the dipole can feed down the outside of the shield as well as going internally to the shield. Uh, and this can cause some radiation from the, uh, from the coax shield. Additionally, if, uh, if you have some, if that low impedance of the feed line occurs, you have the wrong length, uh, noise pickup on the uh, shield can be conducted to the antenna and uh, cause unwanted noise on receive. The, um, the way to get about this is to isolate the shield from the center conductor of the, uh, 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 to isolate the shield from the antenna so that uh, all of the current flows on the inside of the coaxial cable, on the inside of the shield and on the center conductor rather than anything flowing on the outside. And a very simple, elegant way to do this is to use something called a choke ballon. Uh, there's a schematic diagram in the, um, uh, in the, the whiteboard here that shows an FT11443 toroid. And what we did was to take 10 turns of this uh, RG174 and wind it around the, um, wind it around the uh, core. What this does is the outside, the shield of the, uh, um, coax now has, uh, an inductance to it, which is a high impedance. So any current trying to flow down the outside of the shield will be stopped and it won't flow down the coax either way. However, um, current flowing inside the uh, coax, the inside of the shield and the center conductor is, uh, unrestricted. So that it's a way of isolating the shield of the, the feed line, so-called um, uh, common, <laughs> I forgot the term. Uh, at any rate, it's a way of uh, isolating the shield from, from an antenna. It's also handy for uh, vertically vertical antennas that are mounted above ground, where the uh, ground plane might not give sufficient isolation for the shield of the coax. Um, this will keep uh, keep stray stuff from flowing on the on the outside of the shield, as opposed to uh, just inside. Uh, the construction is very simple, um, and you can see uh, if you look in the whiteboard, we took uh, an FT one fourteen forty three toroid and about twenty inches of RG one seventy four, just wound ten turns um, of the coax through the uh, through the core. So um, uh, then. The uh, connection is also made from the um, from the two ends. The coax is stripped back and connected to BNC connectors. The um, uh, center conductor goes to the center conductor of the uh, connector on each end, and the toroid is mounted inside the box. It's important to use an insulated box in this case because if you used a metal box and shorted everything together, you wouldn't have any choking action. The current would just flow around the shell of the box, and the choke wouldn't do any good at all. Um, reasonably simple construction. Uh, there are step-by-step -step pictures in the whiteboard. And um, just to prove the efficacy of the, uh, of the choking action, we took a, um, the AADE LC meter and measured uh, on both ends of the shield across this uh, toroidal inductor. We measured 44. 6.8 microhenries. And that inductance, if you look at, if you calculate the reactance, 
There's a, a, a sample calculation shown on the whiteboard. Um, 2 pi FL using a frequency of 3.5 megahertz and inductance of 44 microhenries, it's 967 ohms. So if you were using, if you compare this to uh, 50 ohms, the 50 ohm uh, uh, impedance, if you had a 50 ohm antenna, you'd have on the shield, you'd have uh, 20 times that, 20 times that reactance trying to block any current flowing down the shield, as opposed to letting it flow inside the uh, inside the uh, coax cable. As frequency goes up, the uh, inductance stays the same, but the reactance will increase until you get to some point where um, stray capacitances eat you up. But in general, this thing uh, is good from uh, 80 meters up through uh, 10 meters. Should do a good job for a, uh, a low-powered um, coax uh, choke. Thanks for the go-through, Joe, and, and thanks for the design. There are two points that I think are extremely... Uh... Uh, valuable, and I forgot one of them already. Um, one is that um, l let's talk about skin effect. I th you might have mentioned it, but it, it it didn't hit me until I really got to thinking um, about uh, the skin effect. And maybe to illustrate that uh, a little bit was my original point. When we when we are measuring the with the AADE inductance meter. We're actually measuring on the uh, shield, from the shield from one side to the shield of the other. So we're measuring the inductance of the shield, um, not the center conductor, as you might think. And I say that in the notes, but it's you normally don't think in that manner. So we are measuring the inductance of the shield. Now, as far as uh, skin effect and, and really what's happening here, can, can you explain briefly? Because I found it fascinating once I really cracked it. And, uh, and understood that the E field of a coax is contained between the center conductor and the inside of the shield. So if you kind of consider that the RF currents running on the surface of the shield, there's RF currents on the inside part of the shield, and there's an, an, an uh, RF currents on the outside of the shield. You want to be sure, and this is the question to you, um, about isolating, properly isolating, and maintaining the E-field between the inner part of the shield and the center conductor? Indeed, that's the case. Yeah, skin effect just says that uh, at uh, high fre at, with AC and, and going up in frequency, the, um, uh, in a given conductor, the conduction takes place at the surface of the material. Uh, whereas DC, in DC, uh, electrical conductivity is through the, uh, the entire conductor. Uh, with AC, it only appears at the surface, so that when you feed a signal down through coax, ideally, you have um, uh, equal currents in the inside of the shield and the uh, center conductor of the shield, uh, center conductor of the coax, so that the two match, and um, that's where all the current flows. If um, and, and it will mean that uh, unless there's some other mechanism going on, nothing will flow on the outside because it's all contained within the conductor. Should you have a case, which is unfortunate, of a feed line, which is a, a quarter wavelength, unfortunately, the outside of the shield then would look like a low impedance. And you could have some current flowing down through there. Uh, in addition, it flows inside the coax. 
So the idea here is you choke off with a uh, choke ballon, you choke off the um, current uh, that would flow down the outside of the shield, uh, and you're able to connect a balanced antenna to an unbalanced uh, feed line because you um, keep the uh, unwanted current fl flowing from flowing down the outside of the shield. Okay. If you've only been listening with half an ear, or if you're not, if you don't understand what we're uh, saying here, it'll take a little bit to sink in. But trust me, when you really understand what's cooking, it's it's fascinating. Um, where the principles that we deal with on an everyday basis, really uh, something as simple as this uh, toroidal core, uh, the, the toroidal uh, uh, choke, is able to do the job, as Joe has described, as far as reducing the skin effect, uh, the RF currents flowing on the outside of the, uh, of the coax, and that's the principle of its operation. So you too, again, can, can uh, make the simple winding and the simple... Uh, toroid and use it in cases when you want to feed a uh, a dipole with a piece of coax. Now, uh, Nancy NJ8B is here with us tonight for the first time in a long time, and we really wanted to make positive mention of that, and that uh, she's a great friend of of our New Jersey Club and the AMQRP Club and many other organizations around, and uh, we featured her antenna. Um, a vertical antenna uh, a number of uh, episodes ago. And for one reason or another, that antenna needs to come down now. But we have a nice coax run out to that antenna. So we were thinking of taking the coax up to the top of the roof and then putting uh, a, uh, a dipole up or a long wire, uh, probably a dipole. And that's what uh, kind of served as the genesis of this, of this, uh, um, the choke, uh, um, the, the the project here this uh, this time, and with this ballon, we would be able to use it and uh, be able to feed that dipole antenna with a piece of coax. And oftentimes, that's something that we would like to do is uh, to put up a simple antenna by putting a coax up to a dipole. Normally, it's not a good reason for the reasons that uh, we've gone through, but here's a simple solution for that. Okay, we're going to wrap it up. This has been a fascinating evening for me, just just kind of talking and going through the, the different aspects of toroids. And it was fun working with Joe. We, we worked uh, all Saturday on on uh, the topic and, and got the material together over the, the following couple of days and had a good time doing it. We hope you enjoyed the material here. Uh, we'll give a call right now for final questions and maybe something that you wanted to ask all week uh, all session long and didn't get a chance and maybe give you a chance right now. So are there any questions for the material that we talked about here tonight? Thank you everybody for, uh, uh, for attending tonight. We're not going to make this a very long and drawn out, uh, conclusion, but hopefully we've given you some good material, uh, for toroid selection. Why, um, why one material over another, the usages and different circumstances, the things to watch out for and the sample circuit. Um, our chat with the designer project is going to. Uh, we'll, we'll be summarizing this in the coming days. That if you want to, we've got a good. I've got a good line on some of the parts necessary for you too to build your own N2CX uh, choke ballon, and you can be that much better for using it with your uh, coax feed lines. And uh, 
We are in the process of selecting the topic for next week. If you have any ideas that you'd like to uh, focus on, whether it's another component or some other aspect of uh, the hobby, the home brewing, the construction, uh, the technology in general, please feed it over to Joe and me. I put a posting onto the chat with a designer list on Yahoo groups where we meet throughout the week. Um, and uh, we'll see what we can do about that. So 73 all, thank you uh, for attending. Uh, and uh, we really enjoyed ourselves. Good night all. Thank you.